everybody and welcome to this the first lecture in the Future of Crops lecture series. Um, it's a pleasure to welcome you all for our second series this autumn already. Um, and tonight's speaker is Professor Jane Landau, um, who is the head of the Department of Plant Sciences. Um, and she will be talking to us tonight about one of the most important uh, crops to us all. Hopefully you've all had good dinner, so your stomachs won't be rumbling, as there will be much mention of food crops. <laughs> um, so without further ado, I'd like to invite Jane to give. rice to white rice. And what this does is remove the rice bran. 
Now the rice brain is 6% of the weight of the grain, but 60% of the nutrients. So 60% of the nutrients from rice are in this rice bran. But when it's processed, what happens is that enzymes on the outside of the bran, a lipase that breaks down fats, interacts with a, the oil in the actual seed and starts breaking it down into fatty acids. And within 12 hours of processing, this becomes inedible for humans because of the fatty acid content. And within 24 hours, it can't be consumed by animals either. So this is actually taken from a, an advert for natural glow stabilized rice bran because there are a lot of people out there trying to work out ways in which this whole process can be stabilized so that the nutrients here can at least be used for animal feed if not for human consumption. The germplasm, what's actually grown? Well, there are 21 wild rice varieties and there's two cultivated species. And the cultivated ones are Ariza sativa, which is the Asian rice, and Ariza glabarina, which is the African variety. And of sativa, there are two types, indica, which is the non-sticky long-grain rice, and japonica, which is the sticky short-grain rice. And in the case of japonica, there's actually three different types that have been domesticated, temperate, tropical, and aromatic varieties. And of these sativa, species, there's 120,000 different named cultivars, and these are all kept in the seed bank of the International Rice Research Institute, and the reason there's so many is because they are all adapted to different eco ecological niches around Asia, so some of them are upland rice, some are lowland rice, some are paddy rice, some are flood prone rice, and all of these lines are kept and used on a regular basis. And the majority of the cultivars that are grown are inbred. And so instead of having hybrid vigor by crossing two separate species, these have been inbred for many generations. So as I'll show you later, there's a genetic bottleneck that's resulted from the domestication of rice. There are two main pests and diseases of rice. The first one is um, a bacterial blight, and it can reduce yields by 40%. The second is this one here, Magnacortha grisia, which is the rice blast fungus. This is a major issue and will become more of an issue with climate change as the temperature increases. But it's been around a long time. It's said that the uh, Americans and the Russians stored spores of this in World War II, thinking that if necessary they would dump a load onto Japan and ruin their rice harvest if they could think of no other way to end the war. Physiology, rice carries out C3 photosynthesis. This is the same photosynthesis that the majority of plants in the world carry out, and it's the same as in wheat. It's not as efficient as C4 photosynthesis, which is carried out by maize and sorghum, at least in hot, dry conditions, and I'll come back to that later. It requires more water to produce than any other cereal. It's essentially semi-aquatic. Its inflorescence bears hermaphrodite flowers, which is why most of the breeding programs have been through inbreeding. It's not an easy crop to outcross on a regular basis. It's not like maize, where you just put a huge field out of two different varieties, and then you take the males off one variety and just let it do its own thing. You'd actually have to manually do this with rice. And it doesn't accumulate beta-carotene in the grain, which leads to vitamin A deficient blindness in about half a million children a year who eat it as their, as their staple diet. 
This is its ancestor. It was domesticated from a rhizorufopogon. This is what the seed looked like, and this is what the plant looked like. So lots and lots of branches, all of them falling over. And so absolutely impossible in terms of thinking about getting a high-yielding crop that you can actually take seed from. In terms of its genetics, it has 12 chromosomes. It's got a diploid genome, so two copies of each is relatively simple. Things like maize have possibly four copies. It was what's known as an ancient tetraploid, and wheat has six. Sugarcane has a dodecahexaploid, so there's many more there. So it has a reasonable sized genome, tenth of the size of ours, tenth of the size of maize. And both the Japonica and the Indica genomes have been completely sequenced, so we have every DNA base of those two types of rice sequenced. Throw in a personality that people always associate with rice, or at least since the Green Revolution, this is the guy Gurdav Kush. He did his bachelor's in India and then went to UC Davis for a PhD, and he moved to the International Rice Research Institute in the 60s, and he developed this rice line here, and I'll talk more about that later, IR36, which was one of the most widely planted food crop varieties the world has ever known. And then he made it better, and IR64 and IR72 are now still widely planted across Asia. And in 1996, he shared the World Food Prize with Hank Beecher, who I'll also mention later, for his development of rice lines in Asia. Okay, so those are the little factoids. Now let's talk specifically about where it came from and how it was domesticated. So I'm going to talk just about sativa. The um, African rice was domesticated through another route. But in Asia, I said that the, age, the ancestor was a rhizorufipogon, and it's essentially a wild perennial. And the first stage in domestication was that an annual variety of that line was selected. This is now called Arisa nevera, um, but the only difference really is that it's an annual as opposed to a perennial. And then there is evidence that there were two independent domestication events, and I'll show you what this evidence is on the next slide. But it's thought that essentially the indica varieties of sativa were domesticated in East India, and that the Japonica varieties were domesticated in South China. And in both cases, it looks as though it was about 5,000 years ago. So what is the evidence for those two independent events? Well, what we can do, and what was done by these authors here a few years ago, is to take a look at the wild rice varieties that are still growing across the world. And what they did was they looked at Rufopogon genomes, and they looked at just one particular gene in the wild rice. And it's a gene that should not need to be selected upon for any reason. So there should be no selective pressure for or against neutral gene. So there's nothing that should be skewing its evolution. And what they found is that across Asia, there are three very distinct, what's called haplotypes, of Rufopogon. Most of the wild varieties that grow in China have the B haplotype. Most that grow in India have the D haplotype. And then there's an E and a C as well. And so what they got from this was an idea of where the existing wild rice varieties have showed genetic variation. And so what they then went and did was have a look at this same gene in indica and japonica rice. And what they showed was that of all the B alleles, or all the B haplotypes, 80% of them were found in japonica lines. 
and the same with the C. Whereas with the D and E, 94% and 77% of the same alleles were found in the um, indica varieties. So this is the evidence to suggest that the modern day indica evolved from wild rice varieties in East India, whereas modern day japonica were evolved or domesticated from rice varieties in China. And through that domestication process, I mentioned that inbreeding leads to a genetic bottleneck. And we can see this quite starkly here, because with that same gene that they looked at, across the whole population, wild and domesticated, they were able to identify 40 different signatures, let's call them. And 83% of those signatures are still present across the wild rice population. But 25% are present in the land races of Satida, which are the, the breeding populations that are used before you get to the elite varieties that we eat. And only 13% are left in the elite varieties. And what this says is that for future breeding programs, we're really dealing with a very small proportion of the genetic diversity that was out there 7,000 years ago. And maybe what we need to be thinking about is something much more dramatic and bringing back in some of the alleles that are out there in wild populations, and in a way, re-domesticating the crop to try and bring back some variation. So what exactly was selected for as Rufi Pogand evolved or was selected to become sativa. But you can see here quite clearly one of the biggest differences is that sativa stands up, which makes a difference if you want to actually harvest seed. And in fact, there are just six major traits that are different between the two. So there's the perennial and annual habit that I've already mentioned, the prostrate and erect form, Rufipogon has many, many branches, so many of these branches that are lying down. Sativa still has some, and that's very important because the branches actually produce seed too, so it helps increase the yield, but it has much fewer than uh, Rufipogon has. Rufipogon has what's called shattering seeds. It's just drops of seeds everywhere. And you don't want that if you want a crop that you are going to be able to harvest when you want to harvest it. And so one of the selected, one of the traits that was selected for is rice that didn't drop its seed automatically. So essentially rice that you could be sure that when you went out into the field to harvest it, the seed would still be on the plant and not buried or drowned in the paddy field. And Rufi Pogan, I showed you earlier, the seed was red and Satyra was white. This was a very important selection because essentially as time went by, white rice was associated with being rich. And so there are still varieties that are cream or ivory colored. And essentially there is a stigma against eating them because if you're rich, you have the whitest of white rice. And so there was a major effort to select from red to white. And obviously, there was a selection from poor grain yield to good grain yield. If you're going to grow the rice, you want to get good yield from it. So how have people gone about trying to understand what genes might have been selected for during that domestication process? Well, it's a very simple experiment that can be set up now. Because Rufus Coburn and Sativa will interbreed, and it's called quantitative trait locus analysis, and I'm not going to say any more about it than that, other than to say what you can do is take the two distant parents, cross them, make a hybrid of the two, and then 
self-pollinate all the progeny of those until you get populations that have different proportions of the chromosomes from each parent. And if you have large enough populations, what you can do then is start to associate certain phenotypes with certain chromosomes. So for example, if this one here, if this particular individual line was upright, then we would know that the genes for erectness lay in this region of this chromosome or this region of this chromosome, because those are the only bits of that chromosome coming from the upright parent. So that, in a nutshell, is the basis of the analysis. And now I'm going to show you three genes that were identified through that approach that have clearly had a major role in the domestication of rice. And the first one is this, called prostrate growth, and it was identified in one of those lines, like I just mentioned, that had segments of chromosome 7 and chromosome 3 from Rufipogon in Sativa. And what happened to that plant was it fell over. So what that said to these people who were doing the research on this is that this plant here has got a gene that makes it fall over, and that gene must reside either on chromosome 7S or chromosome 3L. And they started a hunt to look for that chromosome, sorry, to look for that gene to try and work out what it may be. It also told them something else. It told them that because by having that gene there it fell over, that the transition from falling over to upright was a loss of function. So you lost the function that made it fall over, and I'll show you a, an experiment to prove that in a minute. And here it is, here's the gene. Prostrate growth one, this is the bit that encodes the protein. This was the region of the gene that they identified and cloned out. And what they noted was that there were a number of different mutations in the various sativa lines. So Rufipogon had one copy, so here you can see these just single DNA bases that are changed from the domesticated variety. And so what they did was they took the wild rice version and they put it into domesticated sativa. And when they did that, here's the domesticated sativa, here's the prog-1 gene, as they call it, from Rufipogon. They place it in that plant and it falls over. So this gene is sufficient to convert the sativa from upright to falling over. But then what they did was they took the same gene, but with this single base change from an a residue to a G residue in the sativa allele, and they put that into sativa, and it no longer fell over. So one single base change in this gene was selected for in the transition from Rufipagan to sativa to make it stand up. And essentially what happened was that this gene encodes a transcription factor which you can think of as a master regulator. It, it decides whether other genes get turned on or off. So we've got a master regulator saying, turn genes on. And it turns out this gene functions just in the meristems or just in the side branches of the rice plant. And so if you have a functional protein and it's sat in the side branch, it will say grow out. So in Rufipogon, it goes grow out, grow out, grow out. You get lots of branches. They all fall over. In Sativa, of which 182 cultivated varieties carry that same mutation, it's still, be, it's still present in those side branches, but it's not functional anymore. So it's trying to say grow out, grow out, but it doesn't, and it can't, and so the plant stays upright. So a very simple selection 
for an upright plant. And a similarly, similarly simple selection for the gene that is responsible for whether the seeds fall off. Here there's another gene called seed shatter. Again, it encodes one of these master regulators. And in this case, it's promoting abscission zone formation. Just like when tomatoes fall off the plant, they fall off because the abscission zone is produced. Here you can see that, well, maybe you can't see actually in this light. This is Navara, so this is the annual roof pogan. And here's a, a mature seed here and you can see that there's an abscission zone formed between the seed and the pedicel and here's sativa and it's not and this is just a way to have a look to see where this gene is actually present or functioning and here you can see that it's present just in that zone where the abscission zone will form and once again remarkably domestication has selected for just a single mutation and here it's seen in this example here. So there are a range of rice species and sativa itself that either shatter or do not shatter. And if you look at this gene across all of those different varieties, then there is one particular change that correlates 100% with non-shattering. And that's, we'll just call it the D mutation for now. It doesn't really matter what it is. But in all the varieties that shatter, then this mutation isn't there. And in the varieties that don't shatter, the mutation is there. And again, with modern techniques, we can now prove that this is the difference between whether the seeds drop or not by essentially making an artificial construct. So here's the gene. We can make one construct that has Navara through that crucial region. So the region, so this is now the gene that will say you can drop your seed. And one gene, sorry, one construct that's exactly the same, except for this end of the gene now has the sativa bit stuck onto it. So if this mutation really is sufficient to make the difference between holding onto your seed or not, when you put this into now into Rufid Pogum, you should see the difference. And here's what's happened. If you put Navara in, again, this is the one that will allow the seed to fall off, <coughs> put that one in. And then this is essentially the plants, and it's the force required to pull the seeds off at any one time. And you can see that with this one, you can, you've got a whole range of forces at which you can actually get the seed to drop. Whereas with the sativa one, then essentially it takes much more force to get the seed off. I'll just stop there for a minute and give you a little anecdote about actually about how within those cultivars it's not as black and white as this. Because one of the things is in a number of areas across Asia, it's the women who go out and harvest the seed, and they do it. They, want to walk, they don't want to be picking the seed off each plant. They want to walk through with baskets like this and just shape them. And so what they want is they want minor agitation to cause the seed to drop. And so there are a whole bunch of varieties that have actually been selected for to be sort of loose but not totally loose, so, so that the women can walk through and just collect the seed as they go through. It's far more efficient than having to pick all the, the uh, inflorescences and panicles off. So there is some variation on this. But... And the last one I just want to mention um, is this gene here called Grain Incomplete Filling 1. And again, this just shows the, the extraordinary way in which domestication has narrowed down on a very small number of genes in a very similar manner each time. 
And, and this is a gene where, so this is the this is wild types of Tyva now, this is what the seed looked like. And this is GIF1, as it's called, brain incomplete filling one. And you can see the seeds are really chalky, they're not very robust, they're not filling properly. And you can see that in weight here. So here's the mutant seed and here's the wild type. So you've clearly got something that's affecting yield here. And in this particular case, if you take this gene and express it everywhere in rice, then what happens is your wild-type plant gives you a better yield than your transgenic plant. So it's not as simple as this gene just increases yield. But if you put this gene under its own promoter, so it's now only working in the region of the plant where it normally works, then now the wild-type has a lower yield. Now, how can that be? Well, it turns out that... It encodes a cell wall imitator, which is an enzyme that breaks down sucrose into glucose and fructose. So you can just imagine it's breaking down sugars, it's working out where sugars to, should go. So conceptually, it's not hard to work out why it might be capable of filling the brain with sugar and increasing yield. And the key thing is that that promoter that was put in actually means that the gene is only expressed in the ovule, so it's only expressed in the brain. And what that means then is that it regulates that lots and lots of the sugar goes into the grain. Whereas in the experiment here, where it was put all over the plant, there were competing things going all over the place. The leaves were going, we'll have a bit of sugar here, the roots are going, we'll have a bit of sugar here, because this gene was there saying we can break down the sucrose for you. Whereas in this one, the only place that's happening is in the seed, so the sugar's being directed from the seed. So if that's the case, then we would predict that there would be strong selection on the promoter of this gene not to change after domestication. And indeed, that's exactly what's happened. This is just a schematic of, so this is the region of the gene here. Here's the bit that encodes the protein, which there will be strong selection to keep it the same. And here's the promoter, which unless the promoter needs to be specifically functional in one area, there could be some variation in sequence. And here's, here's this is just the way, the number of, or the extent to which the DNA sequence varies in this region of the gene. And here's the Ruth Pogan promoter. So it's going all over the place, it doesn't care where it's expressed, and, you know, there's no selection on it to be expressed in a particular place. But here's the Japonica and the Indica promoters, bang, shut down, selection, do not vary. You have to stay the way you are because you've got to be expressed in the ovule because you've got to get sugar into the brain. And so again, there's just domestication selecting for specific DNA mutations, and in this case, not so much in the actual protein itself, but in directing where the protein is able to function. So essentially, we can summarize the domestication of rice like this. So as we went from Rufopogon to Sativa, we're not aware of what the gene was that moved from perennial to annual, but we do know that going from prostrate with many tillers to erect with few tillers involved mutations where this single gene became non-functional. And we know that in the case of going from seed shatter to no shatter, we went from a single gene going from functional to non-functional. Similarly, although I haven't mentioned it, going from seed red to seed white, single gene went from functional to non-functional. And then this quite the more complex one, where we went from poor yield to good yield, we went from the gene functioning all over the plant to the gene functioning just in a very specific part of the plant. 
Okay, so that's the hard core genetics of this line back end. Rice is a crop. Here's the crop statistics around the world. 57% of it's grown in paddy fields, 25% in rain-fed lowlands, so essentially not on the sides of the mountains, but still totally dependent on rain for, for water. 10% uh, on rain-fed upland, so different varieties because they have to be much more drought tolerant because even when it does rain, the rain drains off a lot, lot faster. And then 6-7% will actually grow underwater, so flooded rice, flood-prone rice, deep water and in tidal wetlands. These are the crop statistics for 2005. 153 million hectares of paddy rice harvested. That's five times the amount of corn uh, harvested in the US. The UK is a total of 22 million hectares in size, which 18 is agricultural land. So we're talking quite a lot of rice. Um, five tonnes per hectare in 2005 in paddy rice, and substantial decreases in that in rain-fed and flood-prone rice, which is something we have to think about in the future for when paddy might be harder to maintain because of water problems. Yield increases. This is annual average growth rates in developing countries from the 1950s to the 1990s. And so this is 50s, 60s, 60s, 70s, 70s, 80s, 80s, 90s. So the key things to look at here are that the area harvested in green decreased substantially from the 50s to the 70s. The yield went up from the 50s to the 80s and then has plummeted back down again. And the production was high. And of course here, the 70s to 80s post-Green Revolution is the highest uh, production per area, um, and it's coming back down again. We'll look at that in a minute as to what the impact of that is. But what I want to do first of all is talk to you a little bit about what happened during the Green Revolution in rice production. And I'll just tell you the story of how IR8, which was one of the first major producing rice lines actually was developed. So there was a guy called Peter Jennings working at Erie in 1962, and everybody knew that there had to be a way to get the rice shorter and to increase its yield. And so what he set about doing was just doing a set of random crosses between different varieties. And he set up about 40 of these, and cross number eight was a cross between a Chinese variety, DGWG, and an Indonesian variety called Peter. And the Indonesian one was tall, and the Chinese one was dwarfed. And the cross was okay, it wasn't particularly healthy because he only got 130 seed from it. But he took all of these seed, they were all tall, and he planted them out, and he generated through selfing 10,000 of the, the F2 population, or the progeny as you call it. And he noted, in that population, 25% were short and 75% tall. So he knew at that point from Mendelian genetics that he was looking at the action of a single gene. So he got a line that had got a single gene that was making these plants short. And at this point, he found Hank Beachel, who was the guy who shared the World Food Prize, who was working in the States at the time, and said, I've just done this and I've got 25% short and 75% tall. Apparently Hank Beecher said, we can do it now. It's clear, we can do it. 
and he quit his job in the States and he went to work at Erie and he was there for a number of years later. And remarkably, Peter Jennings, who found all this, bubbled up and did something else. He wasn't interested. <laughs> Good figure. So Hank Beachel, who was a very good agronomist, a very good breeder, picked up the project and he planted out a large number of these 25% short plants and he walked the rows and he identified 298 of them that he thought looked about right. These are the ones, these could be good. And so he self-pollinated those and they were all short, so the home side is short. And of the 298, he then planted out progeny from each of those, and the row for each. So we're now, you know, IR8, that was cross number eight. There were, it was plant number 288 out of these 298 that he really liked to look of. And then from that, plant number three. He walked along the row and that's it. And that became IR8-2883, and IR8 is the progenitor of all the major producing rice lines now that have grown across Asia. So it's, uh, and this is the one that he, he and Gerd of Kush shared the uh, food, food price for. But anyway, that's a little story. I'll tell you another one as well. So apparently, so IR8 was great. Here's the traditional rice variety, 170 days to maturation. IR8, they got it down to 130 days. They'd increase the yield from one ton a hectare to five. If you added fertilizer, it went from one to 10, but it was not very disease resistant. And the grain quality was average. Um, apparently some Filipino woman said to him, I don't know why you're growing it. It doesn't taste good, it scratches my throat. And so they worked on the polishing of the grain, and this is where IR36 came in, which is what Gerdef Kush worked on. And the key things here was they improved the disease resistance, but they also improved the grain quality, much more polished. And significantly, they got the time to maturation down to 105 days, which meant for the first time ever, you could get two rice crops in a year. And so this massively increased. So you've now got a 10 times yield increase, plus a doubling of the crops that doubling the fact that you put two crops out a year. So this was, you know, it was huge. And it turns out that what they'd selected for here were genes involved in the gibberellin pathway. And I'm not going to go into this, but all I'm going to say is that this whole pathway of how the hormone is synthesized and how it's received and how it acts in plants has now been fully worked out. It's been worked out by Nick Harbert, who's a professor in the department up the road here. And it turns out that all of the green revolution crops that were selected for dwarfness were in fact mutated in one or other of these genes involved in this pathway. And I think Nick's going to talk to you later in this series, possibly about, I don't know what he's going to talk Next about. Wheat. Okay. Next week. Okay, so, so the key message here is that in rice it was one of these synthesis enzymes that makes the hormone that was selected for. And in the case of wheat, it was one of these receptor proteins that was mutated and was selected for. But essentially, it was the same pathway being selected for in each case as we went to get shorter crops in the Green Revolution. OK, but where do we stand now? We have hit a yield barrier. Um, we need to increase yield. We need to increase various other traits, like disease resistance. I'm going to talk briefly about one of the crops, and that's golden rice, because I'm sure most of you will have heard something about it. 
So golden rice was essentially generated over 10 years ago by this man here, Ingo Patricus. And he developed it um, with a view to protecting children from vitamin A deficient blindness. And so the idea was, could you make rice put beta carotene in the brain? And so this is, this is just a, a brief summary of the pathway to make beta carotene. And the key thing is that there's this, sub, there's this substrate here that is converted by an enzyme called phytoene synthase. And phytoene synthase is present in rice, but it doesn't work in the grain. It only works in the leaves and elsewhere in the plant. And so in the grain, you can't get past this stage. And there's a few more stages before you get to beta carotene. So what Ingo Patricus and his colleagues did was he took this enzyme from daffodil, in fact, and he took this enzyme from a bacterium, and he put them into rice, and he managed to get the whole pathway. He managed to get beta-carotene produced. And essentially, this is what wild-type sativa looks like. It's got no vitamin A. And this was first-generation golden rice. And it was published, as I mentioned, in 2000. Um, there was a huge furor. He'd done it all with um, no, there was no commercial incentive here. No company had IP rights or anything. It was for the developing world. Um, and Greenpeace and Friends of the Earth absolutely jumped on it in all sorts of ways. Shouldn't feed GM food to the you know, poor people. And anyway, look at this. Isn't this ridiculous? They'd have to eat three kilograms of rice a day. And a child will only eat about 100, 150 grams a day. So, you know, what is the point? And I think, you know, one of the interesting things from my perspective is there was a huge PR issue here. I mean, Patricus went out there saying, you know, this is going to save the world. Instead of saying, this is phase one of a long-term project where we've proof of concept that we can do this. Because a few years later, they did actually, in fact, they went and instead of the daffodil and the bacterial gene, they put the maize genes into rice. And now this is golden rice too, and you can get the amount you need in 150 grams of rice. So it's conceivable that children will get enough vitamin A. And as I say, there's half a million kids suffering from vitamin A deficient blindness across Asia at the moment, well, every year. But we have another problem, and that comes back to white rice, because it's yellow. And nobody thought far enough in advance that it might be a good idea to sort of start getting the message out that actually yellow rice is perfectly okay to eat. Um, and so for that, there are still cultural issues in as much as people say even if they could eat it, they wouldn't. There's still issues because one of the things, well first of all you have to get the GM regulation issues approved so that it could be grown, but remember those 120,000 cultivars? Before it can really be pushed out, it's got to be introduced into a lot of those. And in fact, the first golden rice that will go for human consumption will be planted out in the Philippines in 2012. So 12 years after the first publication of the scientific journal. So these things do have a long lead in time. And I think you know, one of the things we have to learn is that we have to get people ready for it. When we start the experiments <laughs> instead of you know, doing some damage limitation across the way. Along the way, I should say. Okay, so let's just have a look at this yield issue. So this is a plot of yield increases over the last 50 years, 1960 to 2008. Rice production in millions of tons is orange. Population growth 
in blue. And you can see that sort of keeping along. This is this key green revolution thing. Essentially, we had a doubling here in a period of 10 years or so after the green revolution. In the last 10 years, then the average yield increase is 1 to 3% a year, if that. And if we project forward, then this is now a different, slightly different scale. Here we are, this is 2000 to 2050. We're keeping up. And at 1 to 2%, we'll probably keep up till about here. But actually, there's got to be a 50% increase in yield in the next 50 years. We've got a genetic bottleneck that we know about, so we don't have much genetic diversity in the lines we're working with. So it's going to take something huge, something ambitious. And I'm just going to mention one thing. This is this pro a project that I'm actually personally involved in. And it was first publicized in The Economist in December 2006, where they quite rightly said, every hectare of paddy field in Asia provides enough rice to feed 27 people. 50 years from now, it will have to cater for 43. So you know, the impact is there. And then they went on to talk about some of the issues that the International Rice Research Institute had said that they must try and tackle in the next next uh, 20 years. And what they said was by far the most ambitious project on the list involves transforming the way in which rice photosynthesizes. This will require some serious genetic restructuring. And what the project aims to do is introduce C4 photosynthesis into rice. And summarizes it here. In hot, sunny climate, C4 plants are half as efficient again as their C3 counterparts, which is exactly the increase we need. They also use less water and nitrogen. The result in this case of staple crops is higher yields in tougher conditions. And so there were a number of us involved in 2006 in doing a brainstorming on whether or not this could work. It would require changing the anatomy of the leaf, the biochemistry of the leaf, the physiology of the leaf. And everybody said, oh, yeah, well, maybe, but you know, who's going to fund it? And here we hit the problem, because there were 20 labs from around the world coordinated by the Rice Research Institute, trying to raise money to do proof of concept for three years. I wrote for grants to the UK Research Councils, the Americans wrote to the American Research Councils, the Australians wrote to the Australian Councils, the Germans wrote to DFG, and all the national councils came back and said, we don't grow rice. Rice isn't our problem. Or this is far too big a problem for a national agency. Meanwhile, the CJAR Institute's Australia aid was pulling out, American aid was pulling out, and so fortunately in 2007 we were summoned to Seattle to see Bill, and Bill Gates, the Gates Foundation, have put up $11 million for three years proof of concept on this project, and we're one and a half years in, and I have no idea whether it will work, it's, it is hugely ambitious, but there are things we're doing and we're reaching our milestones. Um, but I think, you know, one of the things that the figures show is that it's going to have to be something dramatic. It's going to have to be something that we don't imagine will work at this stage. But anyway, going from the economist to the economic impact, to finish up, I just want to show you the cost of rice production in different countries. And so here are the countries. This is the ecosystem, so irrigated is essentially paddy. This is the year, rice yield, and unit cost. And really, none of this matters. And what matters here, look at this. Japan, unit cost per tonne, 
$2,290 compared to 88 in India. Why? Anybody got an idea why? Protecting the Japanese protect those, don't they? Yes. Japanese subsidised their rice farms to a huge amount because the Japanese did not ever want to become susceptible to the economic vagaries of the rice trading market. And so they subsidise all of their farmers and they are protecting themselves against what many of the other countries are now going through, where land is being urbanised and essentially there's competition. And you can see that most dramatically here. Um, and so here's production in orange and consumption in yellow. Um, Japan, you can see, is dead level. The Philippines imports, Indonesia imports, Bangladesh imports. China and India are currently producing enough to feed their population. However, in 2006, China had a bad harvest and they had to import. And the consequence of that was they were able to go to Thailand and Vietnam, who were the major exporters, say, we'll pay you more. Forget this, don't send it to the Philippines or to Indonesia, we'll pay you much more for more rice. And that's what happened, and it pushed the rice price up. And of course, as China and India become more urbanized, as land becomes more important, then this is going to become a serious issue, not just for the Philippines and Indonesia, but for some of these other countries too. And it's got the potential to totally destabilize the Asian economic market if rice cannot feed for people that are living in Asia. And we can just see that here in this last slide, just to see, this is 2001, 2008, just look at how much the rice price is going up. And it's been driven by a number of issues, but I mean, this year also will be incredibly bad. Harvests have been bad this year across China and the Philippines. And with that cheery note, <laughs> I will uh, finish and take any questions. <laughs>